I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 78 as we begin this evening. Psalm 78. It's a joy to be able to be here this weekend and to focus our attention on the topic of the discipleship of our children. And uh, this is an important topic, as we'll see here as we begin in Psalm 78. So much of the future of our faith and the values that we believe the Word of God teaches rides on whether we faithfully pass them down to the next generation. And that's really a lot of our focus uh, today is that sort of discipleship, making sure that we obey the biblical commands to rear up our children in the instruction of the Lord and what that all entails, what that all means. And so this will be an important and uh, I I trust helpful and practical uh, evening as we focus on these things. Psalm 78 is uh, a really powerful psalm. We're not going to read the whole thing. It's, a, in many respects, a tracing of Israel's history. But it, the, the psalm begins by explaining the rationale for why the psalm was written. Why take a full psalm of many, many verses, goes down through 72 verses here, to recount what God had done in the midst of the children of Israel. Well, the psalmist tells us, Asaph, right at the beginning, Psalm 78, verse 1, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And really, the rest of the psalm does just that. And I wanted to begin with this because this psalm in particular, these first few verses, really are striking in setting really the goal and the purpose for what we're going to be talking about and focusing on this evening, Uh, an important emphasis of the church. This, of course, is an emphasis for those of us who are parents. Uh, But really, as we're going to see tonight, even those of you whose children are now grown or perhaps you're single or perhaps you don't yet have any children, Uh, or don't have any children, this is still something that all of us as Christ's people, as the church, ought to concern ourselves with. Because as a church, we need to do what this psalm instructs us to do, not hide the wondrous works of the Lord from our children, but rather tell to them, tell to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. That phrase, we will not hide them from their children, has always struck me. Because who intentionally would hide the wondrous things of the Lord from their children? I don't think any true believer would intentionally hide God's word or hide God's works from their children. And yet, my fear is that sometimes we do so unintentionally. Unintentionally, we hide the works of the Lord from the next generation for many reasons, some of which we'll address tonight And so really the goal of this evening is simply to uh, firm us up in our commitment to passing on the wondrous things of the Lord to our children, to the next generation, uh, to our grandchildren, to others within the context of the local church and our families, uh, and to just encourage you, encourage you to keep doing what you're doing, perhaps raise some practical things we can all be thinking about regarding passing on the truths of Scripture uh, to our children And so hopefully this evening will be an encouragement to you. Uh, I encourage you to take a look at the table, uh, some resources there. 
several years ago, I wrote a book called Let the Little Children Come, which uh, we'll talk about that passage here towards the end of the message tonight. But really, again, trying to be an encouragement and a practical resource to parents, to grandparents, to other church members uh, in making sure that we don't hide the wondrous works of the Lord from our children, but we commit to passing these things on to them. And so I hope that this uh, evening will be encouraging in that respect. And as we'll talk about, this, this applies to what we do in our homes in terms of family worship, what we do in our homes in, in homeschooling, which uh, Becky will talk a little bit about in the, the ladies' breakout. Uh, in every aspect of our homes, we ought to be thinking about these sorts of things. And then, of course, what we do as churches on the Lord's Day, in other church gatherings, uh, we always need to be of how are we telling the coming generations the wondrous deeds of the Lord? Are we hiding the, the works and words of the Lord from our young people? Or are we intentionally, and that I think is the key, are we intentionally making sure that we are passing on the wondrous truths of God to our children? Well, one of the ways that I think that we need to, to begin this evening, particularly with that word intentionality, is to talk about what our goal really is. We can hear words like we read there in Psalm 78 about our goal in telling the coming generation the wondrous deeds of the Lord, but what really are we doing? If we don't have a goal, if we don't have a, an intentional purpose behind what we are doing in our homes with our children, uh, in the context of homeschooling or family worship or or meal times or every aspect of our homes, uh, whether whether it be what we do on the Lord's Day or other gatherings of the church, if we don't have a goal, if we don't have a, a purpose statement uh, in front of us, then we're not going to have any direction. And sometimes I think that's how we unintentionally hide God's works from our children. We don't we don't do so intentionally. But if we don't have a purpose, if we don't have a goal, if we don't know what we're actually doing with specificity according to the word of the Lord, then, uh, then we're, we're often bound to fail. This is, of course, true of any endeavor. This is, this is true in the secular world with any business. Any business has a mission statement, right? Any ministry has a, has a, has a, a vision, a goal that they're trying to reach. Well, this needs to be true for us as churches and us as families with regard to our children as well. And I think perhaps the best place to start with sort of the central goal for what we are trying to do with our children uh, might be what is sometimes referred to as the Shema in the Old Testament. And I'd like to ask you to turn to that passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse, beginning in verse 4, the very first word of this confession of faith for ancient Israel, the word here is the word Shema in Hebrew. And so this whole confession of faith for God's people Israel is often described as, as the Shema. And really this statement, I think, encapsulates a valuable model for what it means to be a true follower of God. And of course, that's what we desire for our children. We desire for the children in our in our families, and our churches, to follow after God. And so I think this is perhaps one of the most crystallized expression of what it truly means to follow the Lord here in the Shema. And this will provide a launching pad for us to think through, again, with intentionality, what we ought to be trying to do 
as we seek to disciple our children. So look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. This Jewish confession of faith tells us various requirements for following the Lord. And then as we read there in the final verse there in verse 7, clearly the desire here is that we also then pass these things, teach these things diligently to our children. And so what I'd like to do for a few moments is break down exactly what this confession of faith articulates regarding the requirements to follow after the Lord and then focus specifically how this, this sort of statement Uh, ought to be the driving force behind our discipleship of our children as well. This confession begins with a requirement that in order to follow the Lord, we have to believe a certain number of things. There are certain intellectual theological truths that we have to affirm, and these, of course, then are things that we ought to pass on to our children. The first of these affirmations, of course, is that the Lord, the God of Scripture, is our God. We believe in him, we affirm that he is our God, and we trust in him. But then Moses adds additional qualification. Not only is the Lord our God, he says, he is the only God. There is only one true and living God. This is the essential core doctrine for anybody who wants to follow after the Lord. And the implication here is that there is only one being in the entire universe that deserves our worship. The one true God is the Lord, the God of Scripture, and he deserves our adoration. And really, if you think about it, at its core, this is what we desire to pass on to our children, that they would truly know these core biblical theological truths. We want our children to ultimately know God, to believe in him, to trust in him. We want them to know that he created them for his own glory and what he has done throughout history. We want them to know that he requires perfect obedience and that he does not tolerate sin. And this very desire then informs our intent to give them biblical teaching so that they can understand the necessary truths to know God. And then, of course, as we work through the progress of God's revelation, particularly when we get to the New Testament, We find additional revelation, the fullness of revelation, essential for salvation. We find in John 14, 6, of course, that Jesus says, He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. And so that that adds the necessary redemptive truth to truly know God, particularly for we who are sinners and deserving of God's wrath and judgment. And again, this is what we want to teach to our children. We want them to know God. We want them to know that Sin deserves punishment, and that forgiveness is only possible through the blood atonement for Christ for their salvation and forgiveness of sins. And so this is where it all has to start. We we want our children to grow rightly. We want them to know God, and this means that they need to know certain things. And this is why the teaching and preaching of the Word of God must be prominent in the lives of our children. It is not enough that we simply give them a moral upbringing. 
It's not, not enough that we have just good rules and discipline in our homes. No, our children must be taught the word of God from the earliest of ages. This was true of Timothy, uh, who, to whom Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15, that from his childhood, Timothy had been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy's grandmother and mother had faithfully communicated truth about God from the scriptures to him as a child. And we must make that a priority in our homes and in our churches. Children need regular teaching just like adults do. And the fact of the matter is we often don't give children enough credit. They often can grasp a lot more than we give them credit for. I remember once years ago, our, our oldest son, he's not here, he's, he's home, he had some responsibilities uh, this weekend, but he's 17 now. When he was about five, we were in a corporate worship service and he was sitting you know, with, with Becky and, and Kate and, and like drawing in his bulletin or something. And I was preaching and I asked a rhetorical question and he answered out loud because you know when dad asks a question, you're supposed to answer, right? And, you know, I would have never known just looking at him that he was even paying attention. He had his head buried in his Bible or in his, you know, bulletin or something. But children listen. They hear. They comprehend a lot more than we often know. And that really presses home the importance of from the earliest of ages, giving attention to communicating biblical truth to our children. Even if even if we think this might be a little bit higher than their comprehension, given it, give it to them anyway. You never know what of God's word is sinking into their hearts and minds. Certainly, of course, logical truths are going to be challenging for a child, a young child to comprehend, but we must teach the core truths of scripture to our children from the earliest of ages so that when they, when they grow, they will come to truly know God, truly know his word, and truly know the truth necessary to follow God, to know God, and to have forgiveness of sins. So that's, that's where we must begin. What's our goal? Our goal first is that our children would know God, that they understand intellectually the necessary truths of God's word to truly know and follow God as he desires. That has to be fundamental. But that's not all that this Shema focuses on. The immediate context of this Jewish confession of faith is in the giving of the law to the people of Israel, the statutes and the rules that God gave to Moses and then Moses passed on to the people. God, of course, required certain things of his people and their adherence to those requirements resulted in either a life of blessing, or a life of curse. In verse 3 of Deuteronomy 6, Moses told them to be careful to obey these things. God had said in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1, If you are faithful to obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But on the other hand, verse 15 But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. 
And in a very similar way, in that context of giving the law to the people, when we think about what we desire of our children, we want our children to obey God because we know that obedience is what will bring blessing into their life. Obedience doesn't earn us favor or earn us salvation, but a life of sin and debauchery will result in pain and misery, and a life of obedience and following after God's law will result in blessings. We need to teach our children that that the Lord disciplines those that he loves, Hebrews 12, 6, and, and that blessings come to those who do what God desires them to do. From the time our children were very, very young, old enough to speak, we, we taught them to answer two questions about their behavior. What does obedience bring? And they would respond, blessings. And what does disobedience bring? And they would respond with punishment, or our oldest two when they were young, it was puniship. You know, they, you know, but they're, we're, we're teaching them that obedience to the, to the laws of the Lord result in a life of blessing disobedience has consequences. Children need to learn that, that actions have consequences. And the Bible expects children to learn to obey. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is what the Bible expects. By teaching our children to obey from the earliest of ages, we are really essentially preparing them to be able to receive the gospel. We're helping them to understand that they are not in charge, that there are requirements of them, and we're helping them to see that they often fail to meet those requirements and they need someone else to meet those requirements for them. Uh, Often, we've had our kids, uh, especially our boys, I would say, uh, repeat after us, you know, something like, Christopher is not the boss. After me, Christopher is not the boss, right? Because our children... They, 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 from the very earliest of ages, think that they are in charge, do they not? And they, they need to learn that they are not in charge, that sin brings consequences, and that they need to obey, that there are laws, that there are requirements that are expected of them. And so once again, the best way to help our children live in obedience to God is by giving them his word. We give them his word in order to give them the necessary truths to believe, but we also give them his word, in order that they might know what he expects of them, what a life of obedience looks like. Again, no child is too young for regular exposure to the teachings of the word of God. So important as we think about the discipleship of our children. Now, when we think about that, a lot of of people might stop there. We want to make sure that our children believe the right things, and then we want to make sure that our children obey, that they live the right way. And certainly those two elements are part of what God gives here in the Shema to Israel and really by extension to us. But knowing and even believing and even living out the the right, proper biblical information is not enough. Because if we look back here again at Deuteronomy chapter 6, even though, yes, it begins with certain doctrinal information that we must believe, and it's in the context of giving the law, obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings punishment, what is the central command of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6? What is the greatest commandment, according to Jesus himself in the Gospels, when he quotes 
from the Shema. The central command, the command that Jesus says is the greatest commandment, quoting now from Mark chapter 12, verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Love for God is central to what it means to truly know God. Plenty of people know and even believe intellectual facts about God. Even the demons know about God and tremble. But what differentiates a person who simply knows about God and one who truly knows God is love for God. And this is centrally important. Because I think we all know of many cases of children who grow up in Christian homes, they are taught biblical information. They have all the right stuff in their brains, but they don't love God. And that is really at at the core of what it means to know God. To know God is not just to know about God. To know God is to truly know God in terms of loving God. That is the central core of what it means to disciple our children. And even more than that, even if we think about in uh, in terms of obedience to God, obedience to God comes not by simply knowing right information. Obedience toward God, at least a willing obedience to, uh, to God, comes from knowing and loving God. Scripture teaches that the fruit of true knowledge of God and love for him will then be obedience to the Lord. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in John 15, 14, he said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. If we recognize that our hearts, our hearts fundamental orientation, what we love, our effects are central to a true relationship with God, if we understand that, then that should significantly impact what we desire in terms of the discipleship of our children. We should want them to know information about God, biblical truth, biblical doctrine. We should want them to obey God's law. But in order for that to happen, we need to make sure that our children truly love God. That is central. And it is really those three together to know God, to love God, and then to obey God, that is at the core of what our discipleship of our children ought to be all about. And if we think about that, knowing God, loving God, and obeying God is really the essence of what it means to worship God. Ultimately, when we think about the discipleship of our our children, what what we ought to be aiming at is rearing up worshipers of the Lord, those who know God, those who love God, and those who obey God. This Jewish confession of faith, really at its core, is a call to worship the one true and living God exclusively with the entirety of a person's mind, our beliefs, will, our obedience, and affections, our love. So again, really the ultimate goal for God's people, God's goal for all of us, everything we've been talking about is not just true of our children, it's true for all of us. God's goal is that we will worship him. And that ought to be the driving force 
behind what we do in the discipleship of our children. This core goal of worship is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want of our children. We want them to be followers of Christ. And this is exactly why then, after Moses articulates this Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, in the context of the giving of the law, he then continues in verse 6, as we read, these words that I command you shall be on your heart, but don't just leave them on your own heart. Don't hide these things from your children, to quote Asaph's words in Psalm 78. Rather, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. I mean, that's pretty much everywhere. There's nothing that's not encompassed by those phrases. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God is commanding his people to fervently pass on to our children this central essence of our covenant relationship with God. Right beliefs, an all-pervasive love for him, and a life of obedience to his commands. And that kind of thing doesn't happen, as we've been talking about, without intentional planning, intentionality, strategies, thoughtfulness about what we're doing in our homes and in our churches. This requires more than just a few, you know, set-aside, dedicated times of of instruction. Times of instruction can be helpful, but what is the context here? What does Moses say? When you lie down, when you walk, when you sit by the way, when you sit in your house, when you get up in the morning, every aspect of what we do with our children ought to be to rear our children to know God to and to obey God. This is the goal. This ought to be the goal of us, uh, of we who are parents. But really, as we will see in a moment, this ought to be the goal of the entire congregation. And we are desiring to see the children in our churches, in our families, come to truly know God, love God, and obey God. In the New Testament, the the central command given to parents that really summarizes this is, of course, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, in which we read, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And who is this command given to? This command is not first and foremost given to pastors, although as we talk about in a moment, pastors have a a critical role in this. This command is not given first and foremost to to Sunday school teachers or or youth workers or other individuals. No, this command to, to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, this command is given to fathers. This command is given to parents. God expects that we parents will give careful attention to rearing our children to know God, to love God, and to obey God, to discipling our children to be worshipers. That needs to be set ever before us as the goal and purpose of what we're doing. God gives this command first and foremost to parents, but I want to emphasize at this point that we as parents cannot do this alone. We have the most significant responsibility given to us. 
We have certainly the most impact upon our children, but we need the church, we need the community of God's people to walk alongside us as we seek to disciple our children. And so this is where those of you here tonight who who maybe your children have grown or you don't have children, this is where you play a significant role as well. Parents have been given the primary responsibility, but this command is given within the context of the church. This doesn't mean parents sort of hand off the responsibility, or we kind of pass this off to others. No, it is our responsibility as parents, but what it means is that parents disciple our children best within the context of the, the community of Christ's church, the community of the local church. Titus, in his epistle, specifically discusses how this kind of discipleship takes place within community, within the local body, the local church. He talks about how older men should teach the younger men and older women should train the younger women and the children. This is how Christ designed his church to be, a diverse body of believers who are gifted with various abilities so that the whole community is encouraged and built up as Paul says in Ephesians 4, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, this is the goal for all of us, that we all be discipled, that we all be be matured, and we want to wrap up our children right alongside us as we see these things take place within our families and within our churches. Where this kind of discipleship takes place, again, in the church, is so important to consider. Where does this kind of thing happen? Well, it can happen in a number of, number of places and in, uh, in teaching environments and small groups and Sunday school classes, all sorts of things that can be helpful. But really, the primary place where all of us are matured and discipled, primary place within the context of the church where our children will be discipled, is in the central worship gatherings of the church on the Lord's Day. The gatherings of the church, when we, when we meet for worship, for instruction, these are critical times when all of us are hearing the word of the Lord, all of us are being discipled into worshipers, and this is when our children are significantly discipled as well. Discipling children into mature worshipers who know God, who love God, and who follow God happens best, I believe, in the context of the Lord's Day gatherings of the church. In corporate worship, children, as we all do, will encounter God as his word is read and taught, and this is where we come to know him. In our, in our worship services, we, we encounter uh, what it means to truly love God, Our hearts and our children's hearts can be oriented toward God, particularly our children as they witness their own parents and and other mature believers in the context of the church responding to God's word with our hearts through prayer, through song. It's in the context of the gatherings of the church that we can grow in spiritual maturity and obedience to Christ's commands through faithful, regular exposure to God's word and You know, children learn best through observation, by observing other mature, godly uh, Christians, not only their parents, but other godly Christians, in dedicated worship unto the Lord. 
When you think about it, this is the commission that's been given to us as churches, is it not? Make disciples. Unfortunately, often when we think of the Great Commission and and disciple-making, we think of doing that with adults, and yes, we should. We think about evangelizing our neighbors and our coworkers. Amen, we ought to. But what our churches are already filled with, with little people ripe for discipleship. The, the evangelization and discipleship of our children is absolutely part of what it means to fulfill the Great Commission. Paul's command for parents to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord Remember, that's a command given in the context of the local church. Just a few chapters earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, I I read a couple verses there a moment ago, Paul emphasizes the importance of all of the members of the body working together to accomplish the purpose for which God created the church. He tells us in verse 11 of chapter 4, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So Paul begins by affirming that God has gifted churches with leaders, with pastors and teachers, called out ones who then equip the members of the church to do the work of the ministry and to build one another up. All of this toward the goal of disciple-making, of building up the body, Again, as verse 13 says, until we all attain the unity of the faith to mature manhood, to measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what disciple making looks like in the context of the church, especially our gathered worship. In order for our personal relationship with God to deepen and mature, we must gather as the church. Right? We cannot grow without the local church. We can't do it on its own. Our our fellowship with God will not grow only through personal Bible reading and prayer. We need one another, right? We know this. We need the body. Well, let's extend that then also to the discipleship of our children. Yes, discipleship, as we'll talk more in a moment, happens very significantly within the context of our homes. And, and, And we'll talk about that particularly in our breakout sessions, how that kind of thing takes place but it also significantly happens in the local church. Parents, we cannot do it alone. We need the other members of the body. What what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good, good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is what we ought to be thinking even with regard to our children. We parents have been commanded to disciple our children, but we cannot do it without the church, without God-called leaders, and without the other members of the body to, to step up alongside us in order to help us parents as we seek to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know, I've heard some parents sometimes who, you know, who, who want to kind of keep their children very close to them because they don't want others to be influencing their children. But actually, the Bible, what the Bible teaches is the exact opposite. Like, I want my children with me in the context of the gathered church. Yes, because it is my primary responsibility. I know my children best. 
I can be meeting their needs and, 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 and addressing things as they come up. That's the responsibility given primarily to me. But I also want them with me, particularly in gatherings of the church, exactly so that other mature believers within the congregation can have a significant impact on my children. I want the mature members of the body to influence my children. I want them to see other mature believers uh, giving attention to to the word of God preached and sung and read. I want my children to to hear other mature believers pray. I want my children to to witness other committed mature believers singing and worshiping unto the Lord. It is, our again, I want to reiterate, it is our responsibility primarily as parents, but we cannot do it alone. We need the local church. And and by the way, our our churches need our children as well. They need the, the young voices singing praise to the Lord. So let me encourage you again, if you're here and you don't have children, your children have grown, view this as a, as a ministry. Uh, seek out the, the young families in the congregation that you can come alongside and encourage them. Uh, if you see a family, you know, with six, seven, eight kids and they're all squirming one Sunday morning, you know, encourage them. Uh, to seek to help them. I see this happen all the time in our, in our church uh, uh, we might, you know, there might be, it might be a family and one Sunday, you know, we all, we parents all know how this is, right? One particular Sunday, it just happens to be squirm Sunday, right? Uh, and I'll, I'll see, you know, a, a little older couple, maybe with, with, maybe they got, they have teenagers or their kids have grown. Uh, they'll reach out and offer to take one of the kids on their lap and help to, to calm them down. That's, that's what we need, that kind of mutual edification and encouragement of the body. So, Here's our goal. We want our children to know God, to love God, to obey God. Essentially, we want our children to be worshipers. Well, how best is that going to happen? It's going to happen as our children are exposed to biblical teaching, preaching, singing, reading, all of these things, prayer, in the context of our homes to be sure. We'll talk about more in on, on that respect in the breakouts. But here I want to emphasize the the importance of the gatherings of the church, the worship gatherings of the church, making sure that our children are learning to worship by observing and participating in what biblical worship really uh, really is according to Scripture. Now, uh, another uh, benefit of thinking through very carefully our goal of discipline, again, three things, to know God, to love God centrally, and to obey God, understanding that will also impact the methods that we use in order to disciple our children. In other words, if our only purpose was to teach information to our children, which sometimes is how children uh, child discipleship is viewed, we just want to fill their heads with as much truth as we can. And I don't want to minimize that. We do want to do that. But if that's all we want to do, well, then we might use methods indiscriminately, right? Whatever works. If our only goal is to fill their heads with knowledge, then we can use whatever methods will get stuff into their brains. But if we recognize that discipleship is more than that, discipleship necessarily involves, yes, shaping our children's minds 
And yes, we want them to obey the Lord, but if we recognize that it centrally involves shaping our children's hearts as well as their minds, then this will mean that we need to pay attention to how our teaching methods do more than simply transmit information. The way in which we teach, the way in which we communicate truth, shapes our children's hearts. And that is of utmost importance. In other words, what methods we use can determine the difference between leading our children to simply knowing about God, information, or truly knowing God. And this is, again, where the Bible must be our authority. The Bible itself models the kinds of ways truth should be presented in order to lead someone to truly know God rather than just knowing information about him. The Bible itself communicates God's truth in particular ways. It doesn't communicate truth in irreverent ways. It doesn't communicate truth in trite ways. No, the Bible communicates truth in reverent, weighty, appropriate ways that shape not only our understanding, not only how our minds contemplate the truth, but they also shape our hearts and our affections. We see this in how the Bible communicates truth. The Bible does so through using various art forms, various metaphors, various poetic language. There's a reason the Bible calls God a king rather than just asserting the doctrinal fact of his rulership. No, it uses beauty. It uses art. It uses metaphor so that truth about God's rulership in this case is not just communicated to our mind, but truth about God's rulership is communicated to our hearts through that image of a king. These things shape our, our, you could put it this way, they shape our imagination of God, not in the sense of fiction, but in the sense of how we conceive God to be. And this ought to significantly affect how we ought to think about the discipleship of our children, both in our homes and our churches. Unfortunately, many philosophies and methods of child discipleship only consider the goal of transmitting information, and they rarely consider how the way in which that that, that information is transmitted is shaping how our children perceive the truth. If we communicate God's truth in trite, irreverent, or silly ways, then what we are doing is we're shaping our children's hearts to conceive of God as trite, silly, and irreverent. We need to think about this. We need to consider not only what we are teaching to our children's minds, but how we are shaping their hearts with the methods that we are using to communicate God's truth to our children. Folks, our method, our, our, our mission is clear. Paul says, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents and churches have the weighty, yet joyful and hope-filled responsibility of nurturing children so that they will come to know God and love God and obey God. This is, this is a joyful thing. 
If we were to continue reading in Psalm 78, we would see that this is what brings hope to God's people. This is what brings hope to the future generation as we teach our children the the truths of God, as we teach them the law of God, and as we form and shape them to love God. Again, that's not something, to, to love God is not something you can just sort of, you know, two plus two equals four. You have to show children. You have to embody that in the way that you are teaching. And to love God is something that is embodied in true, fervent biblical worship, which is why it is so important that we teach our children in that manner. Consider with me as we as we close here the 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 narrative from Matthew's gospel from which I uh, got the title for my book, Let the Little Children Come. It's a, it's a story we know, but maybe it's a story that we don't stop and really consider what happened in that moment. Here are the disciples. Jesus is trying to teach truth to people, and the children are surrounding him, and the disciples are shooing those children away. And what does Jesus say? Let the little children come to me. Think about how strange those words would have been in the ears of the apostle, uh, the, 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 the disciples. They, they probably were thinking, he's trying to teach the adults. The kids are, are causing a distraction, right? Why doesn't he just bid them depart? But really, that day on the hillside in Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth was welcoming those children into his arms. And in so doing, he was really providing in that, in that setting a countercultural picture of his perspective regarding children. Whoever receives one such child, he said, receives me. In that day and age in the Jewish culture, children were you know, better seen, not heard. Get them away. But Jesus was emphasizing something very contrary to the common way of thinking of his day. But I'm afraid that that perspective of Jesus has often been lost among many of Christ's own people today. Today, many followers of Jesus copy not the example of Christ, but the example of the disciples, those who turn the children away, or they fall into the trap that even Psalm 78 is addressing, and they hide God's works from from the children. Now, don't get me wrong. I I don't think even the disciples and Mark were malicious in their action. And I don't believe that, you know, any Christian today wants to hide God's works and word from their children. And yet, it's still happening. It happens often in our homes when we don't give intentionality to the discipleship of our children or we don't give careful consideration to how the methods of instruction that we are using are shaping our children's conception of the truth, or in some families who perhaps think, well, that's the church's job. It's the church's job to disciple my children. I just need to keep them alive, you know, and then on Sunday they'll get discipled. No, wrong. As we've seen in Ephesians chapter 6, that command to bring up our children and the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that is primarily given to, to parents. Or there are some families who do really see that as a weighty responsibility, but they think they can do that apart from the local church. So many, many families who see the responsibility of rearing their children as something significant, 
uh, often end up minimizing the church. We should never pit the family against not one or the other. We want to see our children reared up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and we need the church to do that. We need both together as we seek to see our children matured into worshipers, into followers of the Lord. Ultimately, as we have been focusing on, we need to teach our children what it means to worship. We teach our children doctrine. We teach them the law of God, what they ought to obey. But ultimately, we want to teach our children to love God. We see so many statistics, do we not, of children who grow up in Christian homes and end up falling away and and demonstrating they never knew the Lord. Why does that happen? Why are children leaving churches at an alarming rate? Well, many times it might, it might be because we're not teaching them the right doctrine. That's certainly a, a, a possibility. But a lot of times we teach them a lot, of do, a lot of doctrine, but we don't teach them to be worshipers. We don't teach them what it means to love God. And so this is something that needs to happen on the Lord's Day, but it needs to happen every single day of the week with intentionality as we sit in our homes, as we rise up to walk, as we go to bed, as we get up. This is a responsibility that we must place in our own hearts and in the emphases of our churches. Scripture is clear. Our children are a blessing that have been given to us, but they are gifts that come with a responsibility. Our children need to learn the gospel. Our children need to learn biblical truth. Our children need to know and learn how to worship. Children need careful guidance to grow into mature followers of Christ. So this is our goal. This is our mission. This is what we need to set before us. And my prayer is that that, I, that this would be a, an encouragement to those of you who are doing this. Uh, this would be maybe a motivation to those who have not given intentionality, perhaps in some cases. My prayer is that we will not follow the disciples' example, but rather we will follow the example of our Lord when he said, let the little children come. Let us do that, that we might obey God, and that we might see the next generation come to know the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for this weighty but joyful responsibility that you have given each one of us, certainly those in this room who are parents, but every one of us who are members of your church have this responsibility, tension to the passing on of the mighty deeds of the Lord to our children. And so further motivate us to commit to this this evening, encourage us in this, help us to see this as a responsibility, but a real joy and a hope-filled prospect of seeing our children grow to be mature followers and worshipers of you who know you, who love you, and who willingly obey you. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.